Greetings, everyone. Uh, my name is James Fallows. I am today's guest host for the Everyday Anarchism uh, podcast. And you'll be delighted to know that our guest, the person whom I'll be interrogating to see what light he can shed for all of us, is none other than your regular host, Graham Culbertson, who, of course, is an American academic uh, specializing in the ideas and movements and consequences of the U.S. progressive era roughly a century ago and a little bit more. Uh, Graham, thank you so much for joining the program. Uh, well, Jim, thank you so much for uh, for having me, for initiating this conversation, and for being willing to use your uh, your much greater experience hosting than mine to host this podcast. It's a pleasure to be here answering your questions. Uh, thank you so much. So let me start off with the big picture that's on my mind and that in normal journalistic life would and may still, again, lead me to come interview you for, for guidance. The premise that's been in my mind for a long time is that almost every one of the ills of early 21st century America has some analogy in the America of a century plus ago in the original Gilded Age and all the tumult and the bad laws and the corruption and the dysfunction of the U.S. in the late 1800s. And therefore, if that's premise one, short question, do you buy the basic premise? Yes. The short, the short answer is yes. This is what got me started in my academic career when I was still a graduate student, which was also when you and I first started corresponding, yeah. was the problems of today look very similar to the problems of 100 years ago. And I was interested in figuring out, you know, as they say, I think you used this phrase when we were talking, but uh, the phrase usable past was in my uh, the the first chapter, I believe, of my dissertation. That's what I was after and I'm still after it. So I do I do buy that. Everything's different, you know, but everything is also the same. And at this at this time we're looking for the useful differences as well as useful similarities. Yes. So if we start with the premise, which I'm relieved to say that you at least partially share, that there are precedents for many of the dysfunctions of the U.S. in, in this era, we know, looking backwards, with the advantage of things already having happened, that that era of, of strain and uh, tragedy of various kinds in the U.S. Uh, past was followed by, let's say, a generation plus of reforms of various sorts, reforms that began on the local dispersed level that you've written about many times, um, reforms that were codified in law in various ways in the early progressive reformers, the Teddy Roosevelt era, and later, of course, in the uh, New Deal era with, with Franklin Roosevelt. I don't know whether whether your ambit reaches as far as the second Roosevelt, but 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 mine does. And so the the question then is if we recognize analytic similarities between the problems the first time and the problems now are there useful lessons? Are there through lines about the solutions in that time? Or is that just sort of twiddling our thumbs and being too hopeful and thinking that? So, so how do you think about the usable lessons of the reform responses to the, the original Gilded Age? So the first thing I think I need to say is I, you know, I am an intellectual historian, first and foremost, and kind of a cultural historian, second. And I am... Uh, in no wise a historian historian. So I had a colleague who, you know, worked on the New Deal and he could rattle, I mean, uh, uh, his PhD was in history and he could rattle off 
FDR's entire cabinet, every major piece of legislation, all of that stuff. Maybe you should talk to him. I can give you his name at some point. Um, so that's not the kind of work that I do at that same level. I focus on the ideas and what I'm interested in right now. And this is what sort of led me uh, away from my work on pragmatism and over to anarchism is the way that pretty much every one of the ideas that I thought was good um, from that era is sort of still with us today and has been codified and has, in my opinion, and this is very dialectical, come to mean sort of the opposite of what it meant in that era. And I wrote down pages and pages of uh, examples, but I'll just give you one that's that's very obvious and straightforward. The, like many progressives, <laughs> and I spent a lot of time in this show denigrating progressivism, but also I'm about to say I'm a progressive, of course, like many progressives, I think it really starts with education. And the great theorist of education from this era is John Dewey, who is one of the students of William James, who I sort of credit as the father of this whole era, the, the godfather of this set of ideas, although he was literally the godson of Ralph Waldo Emerson. So you can also put Emerson there, um, the, the godfather of the godfather. And one of the things that Dewey was most strenuously against was testing, standardization, and uniformity. And if you ask someone now, what do we need <laughs> if we have the question, is our children learning, then the answer is, well, we need to make sure we test them. We need to have standards. We need to get things regimented. So any progressive today worth their salt, and this is where I am, you know, against the progressives, would say, well, let's start by figuring out what we want our children to learn, and then we need to start measuring it and then we can intervene based on the results we see in measurement. And Dewey says, if you're measuring children that way, you are not doing progressive education. So John Dewey is both the father of our current education system and the education system that we have is, I mean, I would argue, I don't think this is too far, the complete antithesis of what he was arguing for. And Dewey lived so long that he saw this happen. And in fact, one of his great last works on education is a attack on so-called progressive, progressive education. Essentially, you have all listened to me. You are my followers. I directed half of your dissertations and you directed the dissertations of the other half and you've got it completely wrong. And so now we live in a Deweyan education system that has nothing to do with the ideals of John Dewey. That was pretty. That no, that was a long-winded answer. No, that, that, that's exactly the kind of answer that I, as a as a guest host slash listener and as a journalist planning, wanted to learn more about this. Um, am looking for for anyone in the viewing and listening audience who may not know, <laughs> he is our children learning illusion. Of course, is to a famous line from uh, George W. Bush: "Too rarely is the question asked, is our children learning?" And this. <laughs> You could. It has. Uh, Bush himself has had the good uh, humor to 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 laugh about that. Um, so the my journalistic friend Nicholas Lemon has written a book maybe twenty years ago called The Big Test about one sort of evil fluorescence of uh, the testing movement, which was 
admissions tests and and all, all the kind of um, superstructure of of uh, selective higher education and the distorting effects uh, that that has had. And he dates this to essentially to um, back to some World War One era phrenology movements and ways you were going to categorize people <laughs> in the IQ boom, boom etc. Where do you trace the sort of fall from grace uh, with Dewey's idea of education and how Deweyites then uh, enabled a, the range of testing, which I know you're talking about things different from the big test, but they included as well. Yeah, I agree. So I like that book, The Big Test. I think it's very good. Um, and it does it. The, 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 the two streams come together. I mean, another way of putting it is that book. The big test identifies how the IQ test was invented and how it was sort of um, glommed onto by the military industrial establishment. The way I see things going wrong, and this again, <laughs> I can't shake this word dialectical. I don't normally say that I'm doing a dialectical thing, but I just I'm I'm so struck by it. Is Dewey would say these are precisely the people that we are against. The people who want to measure um, what humans are, what humans can do, what humans can be based on a pre-existing idea. So the whole point of pragmatism as generated by William James is that the world is in flux. It is constantly being made by humans. I mean, James, and Emerson and Nietzsche all share the same sort of ideas, even though they are rarely grouped together, which is that you cannot access truth in any sort of way outside of the, outside of human activity and the human coming together and productivity. So James comes up with this idea or Charles Sanders Peirce comes up with it and James says it's the same idea and Peirce says it's a different idea and they fight over it, et cetera, et cetera. That's not important. The point is the idea is what you want is the truths that will get you what you want. That's the first thing. And then the second thing is, and you need to do this in a sort of open-ended way, acknowledging that if it's true, that the truths are always being made, there is no way to really know what you want. It's when testing and I don't mean just testing, although my focus is, I, I really think the educational thing is really crucial, but we get this in every part of the progressive era. People start saying, okay, we've got these old ways of doing things and the outcome is very bad. We need to figure out a new way of doing things, step one, and then we need to see the result of that. Sounds good. And then they decide to use numbers, quantification, to test whether or not their new ways of bringing about the world are working. And it's at that moment when you grab onto quantification, which, I mean, I'm not against math, but when you grab onto quantification, it becomes the end-all be-all, and then the cart starts driving the horse. If the point of testing was to determine if the ideas are working, then the test needs to be the thing that's most flexible, most changeable, most interrogated. If instead the education starts getting changed and interrogated to fit the test, 
that's when the dream is lost. And to interrupt you uh, then, which there are lots of things I want to follow up on, but roughly when did things go wrong? It, was it there from the beginning in this uh, dialectic and contradiction, or was there a certain event or era that, that shifted things? Yeah, it's there. So the short answer is it's there from the beginning. The longer answer is it's World War One. So um, this is analysis that comes from this uh, absolutely brilliant intellectual named Randolph Bourne, uh, who like Ralph Waldo Emerson and yourself wrote for The Atlantic. And he was one of Dewey's students and he was the strongest advocate for Dewey probably uh, on the face of the earth. When World War I comes along, Dewey looks at the problem of you know the, the the greatest destruction of humanity that has ever occurred and he calls it i think he calls it a nuisance a social nuisance and he says you know we've got a very simple solution we can send troops over there we can win the war we can fix this and it looks very good on uh the spreadsheet the idea that the u.s should intervene in world war one from you know what dewey calls instrumentalism this is the dialectical thing. Instrumental is very good. It means the point of our ideas is that they're alive and we're using them. Or you could say instrumentalism is very bad. The point of ideas is to be tested and quantified and to foreclose possibilities. So Randolph Bourne says publicly to Dewey, and Randolph Bourne dies in the flu pandemic, so we don't know what would have happened. I now see that Dewey and instrumentalism contains within itself the seed of coercion, of hierarchy, of warmongering, of authoritarianism, because the people who run the war effort in World War I, and to a certain extent the Wilson administration, Bourne locates as a Deweyan project. And Bourne says, if you had only listened to William James, that all of these ideas are about empowering the human and making the world a freer and more beautiful place, you would not say, aha, I see that there's a problem and we can solve it. And it's a simple matter of sending enough troops to kill enough people in uh, Europe and then the problem is solved. That's where Bourne places it. And I think that's roughly right, although you would need a social historian more carefully attuned to this exact moment than I to really pin it down. That is fascinating. I'm going to, to um, give you two subits of anecdata from my own uh, relatively recent life that, that I'm thinking of. One is the emphasis on any test, any truth being eternally contingent um, among journalists, that most often shows up among those of us who have worked in China, because the path to wisdom in China, as I think we, we may have discussed before, is you have no idea what you don't know. And that, that, that consciousness yes. of the impossibility of grasping the scale, the contradictions, all the rest of, of China is a is something that good journalists there embrace. You find the opposite in many journalists, especially foreign ones, but a lot of domestic ones too, writing about the US. They can say America is riven, America is going to hell, America is great again, or, or whatever, uh, when the US is at least as almost as contradictory as, as China. Uh, the other thing on the fluidity of tests, 
that strikes me is, as you know, I'm a longtime pilot of, of airplanes. And I think many things about the way the U the way the world following the U.S. standard, which it's it's still that way. The U.S. essentially sets standards for the world. Um, the aviation world does a couple of things about achievement and measurability and all the rest that I think are could be lamps uh, unto the rest of us. One is um, there's an idea that you are never permanently certified for anything. I have in my pocket my pilot certificate, which is good for the rest of my uh, finite existence, but enabled to to exercise the privileges of that certificate, I have to take, uh, you know, instrument checks every six months, and I have to have a health check every year and have to. So the idea that you have to be constantly reproving what you're doing, as opposed to being certified as a World War One style, you know, high IQ person at a certain stage and coasting on from there is, is good. The other thing that that um, I would add to your aviation-related thing is that um, the role of tests themselves continually evolves to serve the final purpose of reducing accidents. There are some things which are sort of stupid tests. Uh, the, the basic knowledge test, so-called, for a, a pilot certificate is lots of arcana and subcodicil 14B of this or that regulation. You do that once in your life and it's over. But then the actual flying test continue to change based on new evidence of what keeps people, people from crashing. Uh, and so that, that is um, the FAA may have been listening to uh, to the good side of of, of Dewey and, and James. So 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 there. Um, <laughs> you may reply for a moment, but I have I have like ten more. I have more questions. So you have yeah, any the, aviation the, thoughts? Are you an aviator? The, the only thing I want to reply on is I I don't think, and I mean you know maybe a French historian would dispute this, but I don't think you can overstate the importance of James and even more Dewey in this idea of setting up these systems that are a series of tests and processes to get the outcome that we want. I mean, if you look in the 18th century, this does not exist. If you look in the 19th century, except for maybe, you know, some of the post-physiocrats in France, this doesn't really exist. It's It really comes in the late 19th century. It really comes in the 20th century. And it's come to be what America means spreadsheets consultants testing and I, you can't understand unless you're reading people in the 1840s how foreign this way of doing things is and i want to say i'm not against uh well i don't know in my more thorovian moments i am against this sort of thing but i truly believe we can take the techniques and practices practices james is my favorite philosopher, bar none, and make them work for us. But if we work for them, we have destroyed the reason they were created to begin with. Um, I, I agree. And before getting to to William James, uh, in whom we share an intense interest, and you also ac actually have expertise, before we get to him, I have one other thing about the sort of foreignness of testing. Uh, as I mentioned, I lived for a long time in China and before that in Japan. and testing of the arcane sort of the kind you don't like is a centuries old part of mandarin traditions there and something they pride themselves on how would you is this just a coincidental development on the other side of the earth or how do these things coincide okay so here's here's my answer to this so that idea of testing was the goal of that form of testing which is what we have now as well the goal of a confucian system 
was the idea that knowledge is in some ways, and you know, if you're a Confucian, you know, write in and I'll have you on the show and we can talk about this, but knowledge is in some ways permanent and codified and eternal. And you get this in, in the West, maybe with the Catholic Church. And of course, this isn't true. Knowledge is in either Catholicism or Confucianism is not, is not eternal in any sort of way. But the point of the test is to prevent change, is to make sure that things stay exactly the same. And so when you get Deweyan instrumental testing, it is precisely a scientific version of testing. It is meant to be experimental. Each new form of quantification is about is supposed to show us that yes, we have transformed the world and made everything different. Now we have, I'm I've, I'm convinced, we have a Mandarin system now in which people raise their children to be prepared for certain forms of tests. And if they do well in those tests, they get to serve in the imperial bureaucracy, which we call the Ivy League or the United States Senate or, or what have you. But I do think that's sort of convergent evolution, if that, if that makes sense. And this is also why Dewey says that, for, Dewey writes explicitly that form of testing is about traditional traditionalism is about conserving the past is not experimental and progressive at all. And, and what strikes me as well, I agree with what you, you said, and what strikes me as well is that the, the counterpart of Mandarin testing, which we now have in the form of, of high school and you know, that era testing, which allows people to get positions of privilege. And going from the PSAT to the SAT to the LSAT to the GMAT or whatever, essentially these are, I view them less as preservers of ideas than preservers of privilege. It's, it's how you make sure you can get to, uh, you know, you find the right kindergarten school so you can get to the right, you know, private high school, et cetera, so you can go to a fancy college and have a more privileged life. Do you buy that basically? Yes, absolutely. It's about preserving privilege, not a set of ideas. But my understanding is that the Confucian tests are also about preserving uh, privilege and not a set of ideas. This is what happens when you, when you institute this. In other words, if you're a court official in China 5,000 years ago, your main goal is to make sure your kid gets the right education to do well on the test so that they can obtain the, the status that you have obtained. And in that respect, it looks a lot like the 21st century in the United States. And to go down this road, just one, one more step. Uh, in China, there is still this uh, heartening quasi Horatio Alger um, story that's very powerful in the public media of the person some, from some rural province who was self-educated around a smoky coal fire and ends up having, you know, beating the other three million students in the province that year to have the highest test score and then can go on to one of the big universities in Shanghai or Beijing. Interestingly, the way the Chinese system is set up, you need to have a higher score as that rural person than you do if you're growing up in downtown Beijing. So that at least they're, you see, they're being open the, about it. Even even within the, the the myth of the high achiever, it admits its own, it admits the contradictions within it. That's that that's that's great. That's great. 
And, and there is another analog, which um, we won't discuss now, we can discuss later, which is the way that a the sort of the most stupid version of this testing has had a distorting effect on uh, on the path for uh, the path to privilege in education, which is the college ranking system, which um, I, I am a very close witness of its origin, having been the editor of U.S. News and World Report at a time when I was struggling to get those cleaned up. But we'll put that on the table for later on, because I, I want to come back to um, William James, whom you've alluded to many times. Um, I will disclose to you later on the source of my journalistic and political interest in him. But for those who are not as steeped as you are in just the story of William James and the imprint of William James, why should we consider him the great figure in in the right kind of reform from 100 years ago? Okay. Um, so I think I've alluded to this already in this conversation. Let me see if I can, let me see if I can put it together. Somehow I prepped for this. Somehow I wasn't prepared for the question, why is William James important? Um, <laughs> And I'm going to interrupt and buy you some time to think, saying just by, by my observation that he is even less known to the general public than is Dewey or than their Jane Adams or others. And I'll give you a firsthand experience. So I was once, as you know, a speechwriter for Jimmy Carter when he he was once a president. I was once a speechwriter for him. Uh, the United States was once trying to do something about the energy crisis in the 1970s. And Carter gave a speech that used the famous um, line from William James, the moral equivalent of war. And nobody knew what he was talking about. There was a story in the Los Angeles Times saying that Carter quoting the novelist Henry James, comma, said blah, blah, blah. So that's why it matters that you sort of have this place on the map. Why do we care? So first of all, let me say, why, why is it that we don't know about uh, William James? And that, that comes with what, you know, James certainly would not have considered himself an anarchist. He certainly also fits what I call everyday anarchism. He wasn't interested in creating schools, in in building a movement. He didn't want followers in that respect. Um, he looks a lot like Ralph Waldo Emerson, who in my world, Ralph Waldo Emerson is everywhere, but I also see people talking about this once read, now disused American philosopher, Ralph Waldo Emerson. I don't know if that's, it could be that because I'm a American, a professor of American literature that I think Ralph Waldo Emerson is everywhere. So this is the first thing, and this is what I value so much about James, is like Emerson, he's not interested in, you know, forming a movement. Dewey is interested in forming a movement, and by the end of his life, surveys the movement and says, my God, you know, what have I done? James cannot have this moment, in part because he doesn't live as long as Dewey does, but in part because he he refuses to form a movement. Now, what makes James so important is for me that he is willing to, is trying to synthesize these two utterly crucial traditions that are bequeathed upon America, uh, bequeathed upon humanity, let's say, in the late 19th century. The first one, um, you can call it whatever you want. You can call it Christianity. You can call it socialism. You can call it the belief that, you know, the world is is good or can be good and that people can work together to make the world a better place. 
the other one, you can call it science if you want to. Um, you, it might be best to call it determinism. It is a, it is an outgrowth of uh, Darwinian thinking, among other things, or even an outgrowth of Newtonian thinking, which is the idea that the world is sort of, uh, humans are not important in the world. The world is shaped by impersonal forces, whether they are economic forces or physical forces. And the, the neoliberals that we so deplore, the laissez-faire economists, they are a version of this form of determinism. I mean, they're, what they say, what Hayek says is, you can't actually intervene in the economy because there's rules and laws. And if you intervene, that's like trying to save a frog from the, uh, from the swamp. It's all mixed together and, and no intervention is possible. And these cold, hard determinists, I mean, one of the greatest ones ever, she's not thought of this way, but she should be, is a, a American author named Edith Wharton, who is just, was absolutely steeped in, in Darwin and Herbert Spencer and Thomas Huxley. And she really saw this sort of, her books are, let's say, are very bleak, and she they do not offer much possibility of hope, and she did not have a progressive view of the world in that sense. And she brilliantly parodies the other side, uh, in, in U.S. culture at least, it's the Christian side, which is like, oh, the world is good and kind and true and, and beautiful, that sort of thing. James says, and boy, was this a long-winded answer, but I'm hopefully I'm going to finally get there. James says these people, we can call them the tough-minded and the tender-minded, these sort of two groups of people. And he says they're both right. The universe is a cold, hard, deterministic, cruel, anything you want it to be. Humanity is just another species in a vast, uncaring cosmos that is going to be destroyed. There's an old joke. Before Darwin what is the life expectancy in Europe? And the answer is eternity. It is not, you know, I ask my students this and they're like, oh, was it 67? Like, no, it's forever. So the scientists have killed heaven and all that's left is nihilism. And James says this is simply not true. There is within this universe that doesn't care about us, this amazing thing called us, called humanity, called language, called culture, called belief. And our project, thus, is to take what we have, thought, language, culture, life itself, and make it what we want it to be, while also acknowledging these, this larger cosmic truth that none of it matters. Damn, I don't know if that ended up cohering. I need to stop there and let you step in. So I, I will, again, give you a, a time to take a drink of water by saying that I'm fascinated by your allusion to, to Edith Wharton because in my world of people who are interested in this era but are not, um, not academics, everybody knows Ralph Waldo Emerson. Everybody knows well, uh, Edith Wharton, I would say. And again, I, I would posit many fewer know, um, know William James. Would you give us your brief take on how what you're describing as the Edith Wharton outlook on life of that era matches that of some other contemporary celebrated authors like Dreiser, for example, or William Dean Howells, or even Willa Cather? Should these 
people be seen as part of a uh, what, what's the what's the compare what's the contrast oh my okay um so roughly the 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 pessimistic group of authors um which includes Dreiser, maybe Cather, certainly Wharton, and also Jack London. What these people have in common, with the exception of Edith Wharton, is they are all committed socialists. Every single one of them wants to use literature to show the readers, oh, Up, Upton Sinclair, how, how could I forget? Yes. To show the readers what the world looks like if a cold, despairing, view of the universe, which is also a version of social Darwinism. Humans don't matter. Forces matter. Let it run. And if the factories are making everyone miserable, so it goes, because that's just the way the world is. Every single one of these people, again, except for Wharton, uses their fiction to spur social change. When you read their fiction, they seem unrelentingly pessimistic. When you read their speeches, they are advocates for socialism. They're talking about the social gospel. They're talking about Marx. Some of them are indeed friendly with the anarchists, people like Emma Goldman and Kropotkin. They say this is the view of the world as seen from a robber baron. Humans are cockroaches who are of no account, most of whom will die. And we have to do something about it. Wharton is much more pessimistic uh, and does seem to think that, you know, you can have all the money and power in the world and you're still in some ways trapped. Wharton doesn't see a, a single easy source of liberation that some sort of simplistic versions of socialism say like, oh, if we can just seize the means of production, then everything will be great. And I would put James with Wharton in that since James thinks mere material uh, wealth and happiness and medicine and shelter is not enough. Humanity has to have a purpose. Humanity has to have a fight. I mean, so Jack London thinks this as well, but I should I should stop talking about Jack London before I occupy another two or three hours. <laughs> I, I will. The next time we talk, I was in Oakland, California, not long ago, and had had a picture proudly standing in front of the statue of Jack London in Jack London Square in downtown Oakland. And I'll say that of the group you mentioned, I think of um, from my limited knowledge, I think of Upton Sinclair as more sort of openly a polemicist than the rest of them. And of course, he ran for president and was very actively involved in, in politics. But that's, but let me, say, that's why I forgot Upton Sinclair, because I just don't yes, consider him an artist in there, yes. in the class of those other people. He was a socialist yes. who wrote novels, whereas London was a, a novelist who was a socialist. Yes. And Dreiser was a powerful novelist who was a really bad writer. That sentence by sentence is unendurable, but the whole books are uh, unforgettable. I agree. I don't recommend anyone read Dreiser, even though I myself have read thousand pages of, thousands of pages of Dreiser and, and quite enjoyed it. Enjoyed is not the right word. Taking great inspiration from it. Yes, the test of a book is whether you remember it, and so I can remember, you know, most of, of Dreiser's books. Let's come back to to William James. I'm going to give you my sort of, um, uh, you know, untutored journalistic assessment of how 
William James has mattered in my professional life. And I'd like you to tell me what is the uh, evolved view of what I'm going to present to you. I mentioned earlier that um, that Jimmy Carter in his energy speech in 1977, back at the dawn of time, uh, said that trying to deal with the then gasoline crisis, larger energy crisis, which is essentially the precursor to global warming, what would be, should be for the U.S. the moral equivalent of war. And I know firsthand, because I discussed this with him, that he was thinking of the famous, to me, 1910 essay by William James on the moral equivalent of war, which I would crudely and journalistically summarize this way. It seemed to me that James was observing that the 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 contradiction the dialectic of the of the civil war and its aftermath in the US where the most destructive event in US history had also brought out many of the noblest traits in individuals and in communities there was a way in which people could bond through and do things look look beyond their own immediate interest in something that was just objectively horrific and ruinous and destructive and, and, and all the rest. And that therefore the challenge was to find a moral equivalent of war, some way to have the, the upside of wartime solidarity and mobilization without the uh, 10 times, million times greater downsides of, of, um, of wartime. And that is the ongoing challenge. And I submit that for the US that essentially is the story of our national life, that it is, is possible to mobilize 99% of the time in response to an external threat. And the, the challenge for a usable past, a usable present, a usable future is what is the moral equivalent of war? Um, what can you, uh, t what, what do the, the professors think about that? So the professors, um, I think they tend to like the essay, the moral equivalent of war. Uh, and they also tend to think um, that you know it doesn't it, it doesn't work or at least hitherto has not worked the idea that the idea that james is expressing that you can organize society um as as an army right um in order to bring a a brave new world into being has foundered every time people have tried to use it we have wars on poverty we have wars on cancer. We have all sorts of wars. And insofar as they are not actually wars, they don't seem to have account, uh, amounted to much. I think the professor's view of the moral equivalent of war is that while it sounds good, um, it makes sense to organize humanity in this way. We have not found a way to do it. I have some thoughts about this as well and why it hasn't worked or whether it will work, but I'll, I'll hold them for now and let you respond to that quick answer. So I, I accept the premise of what you're saying now, and I'd like to ask you about your further thoughts. If what you say is true and the observed evidence of the century plus since uh, William James's essay, teaches us that wars on poverty, wars on drugs, wars on uh, <laughs> wars in Korea, it's wars in Vietnam, don't work. Uh, what does? What, what is the lesson one draws from that essay and the century since then? So, I've been thinking about this a lot um, since you brought this up to me. This is, we're running out of time. This is going to be kind of a long-winded answer. So I'll, I'll, I'll see if I can do it. 
Um, so something that, and this doesn't sound like the moral equivalent of war at all, something that the great essayist Elizabeth Hardwick says about William James is that his interest was always in finding reasons to think about, reasons to believe in the other side, whatever the other side is, which is one of the reasons that we, he's got family reasons for being interested in ghosts and ESP and that sort of thing. But mostly he was just in a milieu in which lots of people believe in ghosts and the scientists said the ghosts aren't real. And so I think he thought it would be, uh, it was important for an important scientist to try and actually use scientific methods to test whether ghosts were real because nobody else was going to. Um, He's always standing up for the other side. When you think about war, the history of war in America has been that you are not allowed to and not supposed to stand up for the other side. In fact, that's what war is. It is a mobilization of everyone against someone or something else. And insofar as we have some protections for conscientious objectors and burning the flag and that sort of thing, these remain incredibly unpopular. I mean, this is what Randolph Bourne, I know I already alluded to this, splits with John Dewey over. When I see wars on drugs, wars on cancer, wars on poverty, that sort of thing, it seems to me that they create precisely as James would have said, although he does not say in the moral equivalent of war, they create an us and them within that society, within the United States, if we're talking about the United States, and then the us becomes the the in crowd and the them becomes the people who are rebelling against, you know, whatever you got. And since William James was the traditional rebeller against whatever you got. I mean, he rebelled against the wars America fought. He rebelled against the scientists who said that uh, ghosts weren't real. He rebelled against the belief that you had to have a PhD to teach at Harvard. Whatever the other side was, he was always on that other side. And so near the very end of his life, when he says, we have to all stand together like it's a war to make the world a better place, I think that was a an, a kind of un-Jamesian idea. At least that's where mm-hmm. I put it in his career. And that's why I think it ha- it hasn't worked. I have a whole list of things that I'd like to talk with you about the next time we get together, which I um, hope there will be uh, next time. And I, w- I would like still to be the guest host the next time we get together too. But for this moment as a transition, let me ask you, What's the main thing you came prepared to discuss? The main point you wanted to make that I have not asked you? Oh, this is a great question. Um, let me let me look at my notes. Um, well, I mean, this sort of all comes together with some of the stuff we have already been talking about. It seems to me that the traditional way that um, that whatever you want to call them, you could call them the right wing, but you could call them the powers that be or the establishment. Their goal is to wage war on the imaginary. Their goal is to wage war on the 
imagined future. This is Hayek's great project. You're not allowed to imagine a world in which the market doesn't manage everything. Or you're not allowed to imagine a world in which the czar is not czar. So the project of, of revolution, although I'm very in favor of, you know, lowercase revolutions, not the big ones. The big ones don't tend to even create revolutions anyways, but that's a topic for another day. It seems to me that the place that the revolution has to happen is at the level of the imaginary. We have to believe that another world is possible. And when I see, and this is a big contentious question that we cannot cover in the remaining few minutes that we have, when I read the pages of the New York Times opinion page or wherever you're getting you know, your center-left progressive version of thinking, the language is, the question is settled. We know what we need to do. The policies have to be mean-tested. The think tanks have come up with it. It's 10,000 pages long. The little people won't understand it. The bad people will be against it, but it is the answer. And the progressive movement of the late 19th and early 20th century was a democratic movement. This is where Jane Addams comes in, precisely as you mentioned, the law, the best progressive laws came, started somewhere, started with the community, started with people. They were grassroots and bottom up, not top down. Much of, I mean, most of the best stuff from the uh, New Deal comes from Perkins, who worked with Jane Addams. I mean, the legacy is there. The progressives that I see now, progressivism as it exists, even though I'm so sympathetic to its goals, it seems to me to be anti-democratic in the same way that Dewey and progressivism ended up anti-democratic. And like Bourne, I want to invoke the spirit of William James, right? You know, from what's the Cromwell quote from the bowels of Christ. Pray that believe that you might be mistaken. I don't have the Cromwell quote at my hands, right? But that's the uh, that's yes. the question <laughs> that I would say to progressives. And when I say this, and I've had this conversation with you know actual human beings, there's a sense of disgust with me because what I seem to be saying is Trump is good, right? Because if you look at the world and your choices are uh, Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump, and you look at Clinton and say, you know, please let this, let us be able to imagine a different world. The only world the progressives are able to imagine is a reactionary fascist world. And I, I, I think here's, here's something that's going to shock everyone. I think we spend too much time fearing fascism in the United States, because if you propose democracy, if you propose uh, taking off some of the progressive technocratic guardrails on the U.S. governmental system, people will say like, oh, well, won't that unleash fascism? To which my response is, well, I mean, <laughs> haven't we unleashed fascism in this country already? At least I'm proposing something new and different. And that's the Jamesian spirit that I want to bring to a hopefully new progressive age. It is a goal of writers, storytellers, and all others to sort of end on a hook 
end on a cliffhanger, and I think you have accomplished that with this episode of of, of how to think about um, imagining a world other than fascism and or imagining uh, having genuine imagination of the kind that William James and others were proposing. At this point, I'm going to do two, two things. I'm going to thank you in my role as guest host, then I'm going to turn it back to you in your role as actual host. So in my role as guest host, uh, this is me, James Fallows, giving sincere gratitude for to Graham Culperson for giving this initial guide through the terrain of thinkers from 100 plus years ago whose ideas are newly relevant now and need to be sort of redeemed from their fallen stature of some of them. So uh, Graham, thank you for this. And now I give the baton back to you as the actual host. Oh, what is it? What is there to say, Jim? I don't. I think you. I think you did an excellent job. I really enjoyed this conversation. And the only, my only thing to say is, will you, will you guest host the show again sometime? As long as I can choose the guest guest, and it'll be you. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. It, it, it is a deal. Yes. Yes. It's a deal. Um, I mean, I do think, and you know, we are running out of time, but I do think these ideas need to be excavated and I do see and I, I know everyone who listens to the show has heard me say this and I know it's shocking to some people but I do think the progressive movement in the United States has lost its way and needs to be dramatically transformed by which I don't mean that the other political uh, road that seems to be the only alternative whatever you want to call it Trumpism fascism is the thing on offer and we're given a choice between president hillary clinton and president donald trump that's not a very difficult choice <laughs> but given a choice between the world going on the way it is forever and something different i would i stump for something different and they did in the late 19th and early 20th century they did not foresee a world of endless replication of the ideas that they had they saw a world of endless possibility and to a certain extent in the bad way we are locked in to some of their worst ideas and then we've left aside the spirit of exploration and experimentation that they were most excited about and that's what we can talk about next time i look forward to it <laughs>